Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Morteza Hajizadeh from Critical Theory Channel, and today I'm honored to be speaking to Dr. Neil Tarrant. Dr. Neil Tarrant is a specialist in the intellectual and cultural history of 16th century Italy with a particular focus on the history of science and medicine. And he's here today to talk with us about a great book he published with, uh, with Chicago University Press called Defining Nature's Limits, The Roman Inquisition and the Boundaries of Science. Nair, welcome to New Books Network. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, before we start the interview, can you please introduce yourself briefly to our listeners and uh, tell us about your field of expertise? Yes, so I'm a historian of um, science, um, with particular interests in the relationship between science and religion and the history of science and uh, magic in the early modern period, and with a particular focus on early modern Italy. Mm. And, uh, well, in a nutshell, we'll, we have a, I have a lot of questions to ask you about the book, but in a nutshell, uh, defining nature's limit, the Roman Inquisition, the boundaries of science, what is it about in maybe a, a one minute you can tell us? And what gave you the idea to write this book? What was the story of the inception of the book? Um, so the book is an attempt to tell a new story about the history of the Inquisition and science. So many of these stories have been framed around the idea of an inherent conflict between science and religion, or in particular, the idea that the Catholic Church itself becomes hostile to science, and particularly in Italy, as a consequence of the Counter-Reformation. So one of the things I'm trying to do here is to tell a new story about the censorship of science in early modern Italy. by drawing on modern and more recent historiography on the Catholic Church. Um, and it takes a long durée uh, approach by attempting to draw continuities between the activities and practices of uh, the Church in the medieval period, particularly the work of inquisitors in the medieval period, and uh, those of the early modern Inquisition. So to try and show that the activities and also the imperatives driving the censorship of science in this period weren't something new that came as a product of the Counter-Reformation. Mm. The story of the book itself has uh, is quite a long one as well. Um, it actually goes back to when I was an undergraduate in studying at the University of Edinburgh. I was in my final year and taking a course that dealt with the history of 17th century Italy. And the course itself was designed to try and uh, 
revise the history of this period of, of Italy. Traditionally, it's been seen as a period of, of decline and a decline that was largely caused by the actions of the church. This caused ramifications in uh, not just science and intellectual culture, but across art and literature as well. So the course introduced reassessments of the quality and value of not only the art and uh, the literature of the period, but also introduced new thinking about the history of the Catholic Church, including uh, the history of the Inquisition. So moved away from older ideas of a counter-reformation and began to introduce concepts such as uh, the Catholic reform. So a sense in which the, the activities and the attempts to reform the church in the uh, 16th and 17th century weren't simply reactions to Protestantism, but were also the products of long-term efforts to improve the quality of the Catholic faith. Um, I began to, to study in this course a uh, the Galileo event, and I became very interested in this. But I began to realise that when historians of science talked about um, science and Catholicism, very often they have very sophisticated ways of talking about the, the scientific aspects of the story. But when they looked at um, the church, all too often they returned to old cliches of the Counter-Reformation. I began to wonder what would happen if you tried to tell a story that was sensitive to uh, modern developments in the historiography of the Catholic Church and also modern thinking in the history of science. And this book, uh, some 20 years later, is my attempt to try and resolve and answer that question. And um, one thing I'm really interested in is the organs of censorship in the church. I, we, Most people know about the Inquisition, but I personally didn't know about the second major organ of censorship, which was the Index of Forbidden Books, that I didn't know, which I came across in your book. So I would appreciate it if we could talk about these two, let's say, instruments of censorship that was employed by, by the church. One of the major changes of uh, the early modern period was the creation of this new institution, the Roman Inquisition. Uh, Inquisition itself isn't um, is a much older older thing. Um, one of the key changes is that Inquisition refers uh, to a legal practice, so it's a set of investigative powers to actually uh, go and investigate uh, charges of uh, criminal activity, or um, in this case, it was transferred to heresy. So. It's uh, officials, inquisitors of heretical depravity, who are appointed and charged with the task of actually trying to root out uh, heresy. So this was, but these were first appointed in in the early 13th century, and there are officials that, that are appointed to serve this purpose, often by um, working co coordination with uh, local bishops. What there was not was a institution, the, the medieval inquisition. It didn't actually exist in any particularly meaningful sense. What we had was a network of uh, inquisitors all seeking to uh, investigate in certain areas the practice of heresy. It is only by the uh, 16th century that there is an attempt to revivify this uh, work, to draw together and coordinate the work of individual inquisitors 
and to centralize it in one central office. So this was what the Roman Inquisition was about, was bringing together and coordinating the work of individual inquisitors and also hopefully expanding the network. And this was in reaction to uh, the threat of Protestantism. It was decided that the measures that were currently in place were not sufficient to deal with this task. So they took as a model for this um, recent changes in the Spanish Inquisition, which have been founded centrally and run by uh, the Spanish monarchy. So taking this as a model, uh, the early founders of the Roman Inquisition, including Cardinal Carafa, uh, sought to make this new institution with a centralized bureaucracy, which could control and coordinate uh, prosecution of heresy throughout Italy. The Index of Bidden Books has a slightly different history. It begins um, actually as quite simply a list, a list of forbidden works that uh, individuals are not allowed uh, to read. And there are some precedents for this in Italy. Uh, so certain secular states uh, produce lists of works. To, it's an attempt to deal partly with the new challenge of print. Now, who controls this list? Who draws it up? That was one of the major issues that was being faced at this period. So initially, the Index of Forbidden Books was drawn up by officials from within the Inquisition. They controlled and uh, drew up the list of what was allowed to be, uh, or what was not allowed to be published, but also offered parameters for the kinds of works that shouldn't, uh, general types of works that should not be allowed to be produced. And these included various types of works of magic or divination. Now, Later on in the uh, period, uh, so the first Inquisition list appeared in 1559, but it was very controversial. Uh, booksellers in particular were horrified by the severity of the list and appealed to church authorities to offer a less uh, draconian uh, uh, list of books. And in 1564, a new list was issued and drawn up by officials from within the uh, Council of Trent and offered a revised and in some ways more moderate list of banned works. But it's only by the 1570s that we actually begin to see an actual institution being founded. In the 1571, there's the foundation of the, called the Congregation of the Index of Bidden Books, which is a bureaucratic institution which was drawn up actually administer and control the list. Um, what it offered in the, in the first instance, what it was designed to do was to implement a new policy of censorship and expurgation that had been created uh, with the 1564 index. The 1564 index had said that certain works could be returned uh, to circulation if offending material was excised from them. So if you could take out um, relatively small passages or even complete pages that can included offensive or heretical material, it would be possible to return them to uh, circulation. And the Congregation of the Index was initially charged with the task of overseeing this process of expurgation. But gradually it developed um, into playing a wider role of actually drawing up a new list of uh, books a new index, which uh, occupied much of its time up until the 1590s. 
and it carried on with this work into the 17th century. And uh, part of the, the, generally speaking, there is this idea that counter, the, the reason that there was this suppression or there was a censorship maybe about, of, of books or scientists was, uh, was, was the reformation. Do you, do you believe that this was the case? Was, was counter-reformation a major cause of censorship or and suppression? I mean, this is really one of the key questions that led me into trying to re write this book. I mean, one of the key things I've been trying to move away from is uh, to get away from this idea of the Counter-Reformation. That's been a key driver of this work and of this study. Why is it that I'm uncomfortable with uh, the Counter-Reformation? Well, in part, it's because it makes the actions of the Catholic Church appear to be purely a response to uh, the Reformation. It makes it seem as though um, what is going on in this period has no uh, longer history, a deeper history. So one of the big stories I've been trying to move away from is the idea that the Roman Inquisition was founded and to combat Protestantism. There's no um, contesting that. It was certainly created in order to deal with a specific threat that seemed to be becoming more acute during the 1540s. However, the big story runs something along the lines that by the time the Roman Inquisition had successfully dealt with Protestantism and essentially eradicated the Protestant threat from within Italy by around about the 1570s to 1580s, uh, the church turned its, had this machinery of repression, this machinery of censorship, didn't quite know what to do with it. And so it began to turn it onto new targets, including philosophy, science, and targets that were never the initial and intended target of Inquisition. So one of the things that I'm objecting to is the fact that actually the prosecution of forms of science or certainly forms of magic uh, have always formed part of inquisitors' activities. It's always been part of the work of inquisitors to investigate the kinds of activities that I discuss in my book. And what I'm trying to do is to draw this uh, deeper history, make these uh, connections between the work and the activities of the uh, inquisitors, and particularly they are generally drawn from the Dominican order. Not always, but for the most part drawn from the Dominican order. and trying to make connections between the activities of earlier inquisitors and those of the 16th century. So what I'm trying to do is to place, um, make connections between earlier reformist efforts that occurred in medieval and uh, so from the 13th century onwards, to make those connections with the activities and the aims driving the censorship of science in 16th century Italy. It's, um, a lot of the intentions behind Inquisition remain consistent from the 13th century through to the 16th. It's not just because we've got this apparatus of, of uh, repression that needs to be given a new task. And uh, you, you also mentioned that Italy was a particularly bad place or dangerous place maybe to practice science. Why is that? that Italy was this kind of dangerous place from among all the other places in Europe? 
Well, I think in part this is a this is certainly an image that uh, has come down through the ages, and it's one that I would certainly seek to try and hopefully complicate. It was certainly a clear to um, that certain contemporaries believed that Italy was a bad place to practice uh, science. So John Milton, in his uh, uh, polemical work *Areopagitica*, uh, in which he argued for the freedom of the press, told an anecdote about his uh, reported travels through Italy, uh, where he said he met Galileo, who was imprisoned uh, for speaking in ways that the inquisitors didn't like. And he met him under house arrest, and he noted that actually the oppressive atmosphere created by the church had uh, really served to dampen um, the Italian intellect. It, so it's a, a rhetorical story that certainly comes down in English sources and also in Italian historiography. There's a big story that after the glories and heights of the, Re uh, the Renaissance, Italy descends into a period of decadence, into a period of decline, uh, one in which the church effectively prevents uh, uh, the free practice of uh, reason and the intellect. I I am of the opinion that um, actually, yes, the Inquisition was present and it did complicate the lives of uh, certain practitioners. So, for example, Giambattista della Porta, who was a philosopher and magician in this period, who came before the Inquisition. It certainly made uh, it more difficult for him in many ways to uh, practice science. But this was less common, I think, than the big story would have you believe. Gal the Galileo affair is the great example of uh, the church appearing to suppress science. But it was, in fact, incredibly unusual. It's um, uh, both in terms of the events that took place during the Galileo affair, but also very few scholars were actually placed on trial for uh, making scientific claims that appeared to contradict uh, theological ideas. Um, and I think if we care to look actually within Italy, there is far more scientific activity going on uh, than certainly is allowed in traditional historiography. So. A field to uh, so, while there are certainly clear tropes coming from the 17th century, from the likes of Milton, that Italy was a bad place to practice science, and it's a story that historians have reiterated and repeated for a range of reasons. We may simply not be looking thoroughly enough for the practice of science within Italy. You know, we look; there are science continues to be practiced. Quite routinely, um, there are academies all over Italy in the early modern period practicing science. Uh, there are close links between uh, Italian intellectuals and those of uh, in, in Northern Europe, uh, including connections to institutions such as the Royal Society. So while the Inquisition may indeed have made it perhaps more difficult or more challenging, or certainly given certain scholars pause about the ideas they might express. Um, I think that the overall big picture 
it's been exaggerated that Italy was a negative place uh, for the practice of science. Mm. Uh, and, and you also talk about these, this group of inquisitors called the Inquisitors of her Heretical Depravity. Uh, mm. Who were they? How were they different from other regular inquisitors and how were they appointed? Inquisitors of Heretical Depravity is uh, essentially the office of an, an inquisitor. As I mentioned earlier, there is no such thing as a medieval inquisition. All there were were inquisitors and these inquisitors of heretical depravity. So um, inquisition itself is a legal process. It's a form of legal investigation that uh, was first created in secular contexts in the, I think, the 11th century or so. And it offered a new way of individuals were supposed to go in and investigate uh, allegations of heresy or rumours of heresy. They were given the powers to actually uh, go and see, actively seek to uncover this, uh, what, uh, uh, uncover the, these alleged activities or alleged beliefs. So the initially inquisitors are appointed by uh, local bishops who uh, send in the inquisitors to investigate allegations of heresy in their own diocese. But gradually, um, the papacy begins to appoint its own officials. It's um, partly to bypass uh, the local bishops. And they send directly uh, appointed officials. Um, and they're often drawn from uh, the, the mendicant orders, particularly the Dominicans, but also to a lesser extent, the Franciscan order. And this was for several reasons. In the first instance, the um, mendicants are owe their existence directly to uh, the papacy. And, and so there's a, a close connection between the mendicants and the papacy from the very outset. But also the Dominicans in particular were an intellectual elite within the church. They were founded uh, specifically for the task of rooting out heresy. They um founded by Dominic Guzman, who was trying to preach against and the uh, Cathar heresy in southern France and northern Italy. And he had this idea that you could create a highly mobile order of preachers. It's the, that's the other name for the Dominican order, the order of preachers, who would seek to move around and educate and preach against uh, this heresy. And so from the very outset, they are designed and built to actually think about and address the problem of heresy. Uh, and they come inserted in the early universities and develop uh, systematic uh, theological and philosophical ideas that help them in this work of uh, investigating and preaching against heretical or superstitious ideas. And uh, so one of, one of the things that they particularly were sens sensitive about, let's say, uh, was magic and mm -hmm. heresy. But uh, my question is, and that's something you discuss in the book uh, that I found interesting, was that it's there was potentially there was some sort of a legitimate form of magic, so not any kind of magic was uh, automatically under the suspicion of Inquisition. So what kind of, how did they distinguish, let's say, between magic and heresy or uh, or or sort of 
legitimate magic that they decided not to prosecute. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a few categories bound up in this. So uh, just to go through some quick definitions, heresy is uh, much more of a, is a crime associated, it's a, it's, a, it's a crime of the mind. It is holding a belief that is contrary to um, established doctrine. And uh, so, for example, the idea that uh, God is a trinity, so the denial of, say, Christ's place in the trinity would be one of the original uh, foundational heresies. Now, the mark of the heretic is persisting in false belief, even though it's being, true belief has been taught to you. It's uh, having had the true belief explained to you, but refusing to actually accept that and persevering in your uh, perverse, incorrect belief. Now, there's also a further term called uh, superstition, which is concerned with uh, incorrect religious practice. So that could be, for example, worshipping idols rather than directing your worship, so an activity towards God. Now, there are a whole host of uh, operative arts that are designed to do achieve certain ends. So, for example, trying to gain privileged knowledge of the future. So trying to predict what will happen uh, in, in, in future events. Or there are forms of uh, activities designed to make perhaps somebody fall in love with somebody else or to locate forms of uh, lost lost goods or lost property. We might um, place all these under the general category of magic. And many contemporaries did refer to them as forms of magic. But uh, to understand the debates about which of these are legitimate or illegitimate, we need to place them in a further context. So we're dealing with a world in which certainly Christian intellectuals believe that the cosmos is an orderly, regular place that obeys regular rules. And this is an idea that's derived from ancient Greek philosophy. And it's something that's been really taken back up from the 11th and 12th centuries. There's been a rapid recovery of ancient Greek scholarship and ancient Greek learning. And they've adopted this idea of the cosmos as a uh, regular orderly place uh, where nature obeys regular laws and you can predict, uh, from understanding those laws, you can predict uh, future uh, events within that more intellectual order. The problem comes with Christianity. You have to lay on top of this an idea that there is a providential God who can intervene in this creation. And he also um, has certain creatures who can intervene in his creation. These include not only humans, but also angels and fallen angels or demons. So what does this mean? In part, it's believed that humans can manipulate and control these laws of nature. They have a particularly advanced philosophical knowledge of the natural order. If you can understand these laws of nature, you can work out how to manipulate and control them. So coming forward into the 16th century, this can be quite mundane practices. So, for example, uh, uh, Giovanni Battista della Porta, who I mentioned earlier, um, is 
idea of natural magic was really quite capacious and could include things such as uh, what we would consider technical know-how, how to make things like strawberries ripen out of season. But it's a manipulating and controlling of the natural. But it's also believed that um, demons and angels can also manipulate and control these laws to produce wonders and effects that are beyond ordinary human comprehension. So uh, they are incorporeal beings. They can move far faster than humans. They are far, far more intelligent. They have a far more sophisticated understanding of these natural laws. And so they can produce wonders which simply stupefy humans and perhaps fool them into thinking that they are miraculous. But only God uh, can produce true miracles. And a true miracle in this sense and uh, in this theological sense is um, breaking uh, these laws of nature that he has established. So a good example of this would be bringing the dead back to life. This is something that goes beyond the capabilities, not only of humans, but also of demons and angels. It's a violation of the fundamental laws of nature. Now, within this intellectual setup, and we're trying to work out what activities are legitimate and what not. So there are various ways that one can practice magic. Um, one might be in this Delaporton style, where what you're claiming to be doing is manipulating the laws of nature by using your skilled knowledge. And for some people, uh, for Delaporta in particular, this was natural magic. It was a legitimate form of magic because it's just purely about human knowledge of what's uh, how the world works. It's a technical know-how. There are also forms of magic which directly appeal to demons or angels to make them work. And this involves uh, forms of uh ritual activity, ritual prayer. So, for example, there's a, a book that uh, was published in the um, late 12th century called the Quidicula Salmonis, which circulated, probably written near, near the University of Bologna. And the, what this work was, was essentially a shortcut to try and acquire knowledge very quickly. And it took a form of a series of prayers, and a cycle of prayers, were to be delivered to and invoke angels. Now, where this becomes dangerous is the question is, these forms of prayer and these forms of ritual activity, are you genuinely contacting angels or are you, in fact, contacting demons in order to perform works on your behalf? And it's in this instance that it creates suspicion that even though the practitioner, the operator of this magic, may be working with good intent, what they're actually doing is um, offering worship and reverence that they should only be offering to either God or the saints. They're offering it to demons. This is where the activity becomes superstitious. And this comes more broadly in discussion of uh, other forms of activity, other contested operative arts. So, for example, is it possible to make... Um, privileged knowledge of the future. And one of the great examples of this is the practice of astrology in the early modern period. So many of the practitioners of astrology would suggest that yes, it was indeed possible to make knowledge of certain kinds of uh, future events. So for example, by relating, uh, it was believed that the planets 
had an effect on weather systems and climate in uh, and could change and shape weather patterns and climatic conditions down on Earth. Now, this was important because disease was understood in humoral terms, a balance between the four humours. And this was believed to be affected by weather patterns. So if you know that the movements of the planets will have uh, regular and predictable effects on climatic and weather conditions down on Earth, and you can predict the movement of the stars, you can begin to correlate uh, disease patterns with the movements of those stars. And this was seen as a very legitimate form of knowledge. It's purely uh, natural. What you're collecting is causes and effects. Where it became more dangerous was when you were trying to predict uh, future human activities. Could you predict, for example, who was going to become Pope or who would behave in a certain manner in the future. Now, for many Christians, the answer was you simply cannot predict this kind of thing, not least because it would undermine ideas of free will. So this is where you reach the limits of what astrology was believed to be possible, the kind of knowledge that astrology was believed to be possible of producing. It was simply not naturally possible to predict uh, future contingent events. What this aroused was the suspicion of those who claimed by these natural techniques, by the study of the stars, to be able to produce knowledge of these future contingent events. It aroused the suspicion that clearly they weren't getting their knowledge from uh, the study of nature and the study of the natural world, but must be acquiring that knowledge from somewhere else. And the suspicion was aroused that they must be getting it from demons. And if they're getting it from demons, they must be doing something to attract a demon. Uh, they must be engaging in this kind of misplaced worship of demons, the kind of superstitious practices that would allow them uh, to secure that knowledge. So the map is um, complicated and contested. So while some individuals such as um, Thomas Aquinas, who is a, a really important uh, member of the Dominican Order in the 13th century, he didn't make a distinction between natural and unnatural magic. All he made a distinction between was natural activities, so forms of natural astrology, he was fine with that, but superstitious activities, which were operative arts, which quite clearly for him uh, couldn't work by natural means. So he had a very different view to Della Porta, who, although they might be describing very similar things, this uh, idea that one can manipulate and control and have knowledge of the natural order. Aquinas would have just called that natural. Della Porta gives it this title, natural magic, and it's partly these differing uses of categories which can obscure our understanding of uh, what's going on in the past. And I'm glad you talked about uh, Thomas Aquinas. I wanted to ask you about him, but you just explained him. Uh, uh, I'm also keen to know more about, uh, let's say, how Pope John, if I'm not mistaken, Pope John Twenty Second, right, tried to clarify Inquisitor's pa powers. Uh, he issued a bull, a, a, a bull. I can't pronounce the name, so I'll leave the pronunciation to Super Ilius Specula, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's to, right. to yeah, to clarify Inquisitor's powers through this. <clears throat> 
uh, papal bull. And what was its impact on the rate of persecutions? What was it and what was its rate of impact on the on, on persecutions? Well, the um, key issue with the, this bull of Cibrillius Specula was um, trying to define inquisitors' powers. Now, as we mentioned, inquisitors uh, were invested with power and authority to uh, investigate cases of heresy, which, as we've just discussed, heresy is a very specific category. It is a thought crime. It is holding these doctrinal views which are run contrary to those established by the Orthodox Church. Um, and that was the precise and specific task of the inquisitors of heretical depravity had been charged with dispensing. There was an ambiguity about whether they actually had also the authority to investigate cases of superstition. This is, as mentioned, these cases where individuals are practicing religion in a misplaced way, so offering worship to things they shouldn't be worshipping. So in the case of magic, specifically offering worship to demons in order to uh, make certain magical uh, practices function. Now, there was a legal ambiguity about whether inquisitors could indeed actually investigate these uh, forms of superstition. So one of the things that John the Second Twenty Second is trying to do when he commissions a, um, a board of uh, theologians to discuss precisely this problem and whether it is possible for inquisitors to um, investigate uh, allegations of superstition as well as allegations of uh, heresy. And uh, partly this was because uh, John the Twenty Second himself had been on the receiving end of magical attacks. People had tried to uh, assassinate him via the use of magic. So he was very sensitive to the issue. But the bull um, was designed to uh, basically clarify, hopefully, this relationship and to give uh, inquisitors, essentially gives inquisitors the authority to prosecute superstition in the same manner as they would uh, uh, heresy. It doesn't uh, fully conflate the two, but it does invest inquisitors with this authority. Um, does it impact the rate of persecutions? Um, this bull occurs in the earlier 14th century, and there's certainly not a huge uptick in levels of persecutions. I mean, partly it can be difficult to measure this. Our records of um, not only the number of trials that are taking place in this period are certainly not complete, but also we have troubles of problems of classification, which um, which trials are actually dealing with um, forms of magic. So it, it, it can be hard to assess uh, changes to the rate of persecution. I think one of the more important effects it had was, even though it didn't seem to really give a sharp uptick in the number of individuals being prosecuted for magic, this only really begins to occur in the 15th century. What it did was to begin to establish a new basis for inquisitors to prosecute forms of uh, forms of magic, and one of the things it really cemented was um, criteria or evidence for um, forms of magical activity that could be investigated by 
uh, inquisitors. And at the basis of this lay um, a, a new emphasis, not on the kind of nuanced distinctions that Thomas Aquinas was making between uh, natural and superstitious activities, but um, trying to look at individual arts and trying to work out were they could they truly function, could they truly work by natural means. There was a new emphasis put on the actual actions of uh, the magicians. So inquisitors were primed to look for evidence of ritual activity, maybe evidence such as candles or um, uh, spell books that actually show that these magicians were directly and explicitly trying to invoke uh, demons in order to work magic. Now this left uh, something of a grey area. So for there are certain forms of magic which didn't explicitly involve the invocation of the demons. So as we discussed the case of astrology, another good grey area would be uh, the construction of astrological talismans. So this is a belief that you can uh, form certain uh, talismans out of materials, so kinds of particular kinds of metal. If you put the right kinds of inscriptions on them, you can draw down uh, natural powers of the heavens. And you can use that, for example, to uh, enhance human health. Now, Aquinas was perfectly happy with the idea that certain metals or certain gems might indeed be able to draw down celestial influences. But this, for him, was a natural property of those metals, of those stones. It had nothing to do with anything that humans could do or change or manipulate. So for Aquinas, the act of actually seeking to put markings or inscriptions on a piece of metal or to inscribe gems in order to try and uh, draw down natural um, influences was a false idea. What the individual was actually doing was... Um, by the act of making these markings, they were appealing to demons who would um, work the healing, provide the healing benefits on behalf of the human, thereby drawing the human into superstition and putting their own salvation in jeopardy. Now, in Nicholas II's, uh, sorry, John XXII's um, reformed idea of, uh, of heresy and magic that was illustrated in the super earlier specula, these kinds of activities, these borderline and marginal activities, were um, were really pushed to the margins. They, the, the the focus of investigation became much more on finding examples of individuals who were directly appealing to demons or perhaps angels in order to work magic. The broader category of these uh, liminal activities, such as astrology, or Acts such as chiromancy, palm reading, didn't really um, became less important during this peak period, with this intense focus on finding evidence of ritual activity. Um, there was also this other inquisitor, this very famous or maybe infamous inquisitor, uh, the Dominican inquisitor Nicholas Eimerich. Uh, can you talk about him and also how he interpreted Thomas Aquinas? Did he interpret him correctly or not? And talk about his famous book, Directorium Inquisitorum. So, um, Nicholas Emmerich is a um, 14th century um, inquisitor. He was uh, played a leading role in the Inquisition of Aragon. 
And one of the things he did was to produce a famous handbook, the Directorium Inquisitorum, which is essentially a, well, as the name suggests, it's a handbook that um, was designed to help instruct and guide inquisitors in their work. Um, as we discussed and mentioned earlier, uh, inquisitors of heretical depravity, they there was no institution of the Inquisition, or it didn't exist in, in, a, in a really very meaningful sense. So there's less of an institutional memory. And so forms of continuity were built up and ideas of how inquisitorial practice might work, how it might function, were often enshrined in these uh, works, handbooks written by practicing inquisitors that could guide um, those who, who um, would be coming along later and filling this office of inquisitor of heretical depravity. And um, there were a number of examples before Eimerick wrote his work in the 14th century. So Bernard Gui was, um, wrote another one earlier in the century that was also influential, but Eimerick seems to be one of the great, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a long work and draws together a lot of ideas about what inquisitors should be looking for, what kind of practices they should be investigating, but also he offers practical advice on how actually one should run an inquisitorial trial. If you're an inquisitor running into riding into town to investigate allegations of inquisition, he guides you on how you should uh, approach the allegations, but also on the mechanics of running an inquisitorial trial. That's one of the things you have to understand about the inquisition. It is a uh, an ecclesiastical court, and things are the trials are run according to legal processes, and they're set out and guided in this directorium inquisitorum. And it um, becomes a very influential work, and it's uh, not only is it codifying inquisitorial practices, but it's used in the early days of um, the Roman Inquisition. Uh, it's used to guide and direct the work of uh, inquisitors working in this new institution, which gives you that sense of the institutional memory, the connection between earlier medieval practices and what's going on in the 16th century. It's also um, re-edited by Nicholas Peña in the 1580s, who produces a new edition of this work, complete with a, a commentary on uh, aspects of the ideas that it contains. And this really helps to solidify its influence in uh, the later period. Um, but... Eimerick has uh, a very interesting take on Thomas Aquinas' works. I would suggest that he doesn't entirely understand what Aquinas is getting at. I think this is partly because um, Aquinas has a large corpus. Uh, he produced a lot of different writings. And the works that Eimerick cites in uh, his Directorium Inquisitorum are only a very few of Aquinas' works. And most importantly, he doesn't actually discuss Aquinas's uh, her masterpiece, his masterwork, the Summa Theologica. This is um, Aquinas's large compendium of philosophy, uh, theology, which is designed as um, essentially as an introduction to all of theology, all of theological thought. But within this work, he discusses at some length the issues of um, the, the correct boundaries of between superstition 
and natural activity. He discusses activities such as astrology, but also other forms of divination. So activities designed to create privileged knowledge of the future, um, including things like um, chiromancy or palm reading. It's quite seems quite clear to me that Aymeric hasn't actually really engaged with this already in any particular detail. So what Aymeric does have is a general sense of what Aquinas argues and how he thinks about things. And that includes this idea that it's possible to uh, engage and practice an operative art if uh, that operative art is natural. It works by natural means and has natural causes. So uh, back to this idea of, of astrology, it's possible to predict uh, patterns of disease because um, you're making correlations between natural movements of the stars, which have effects on the wider environment, which influence health. And uh, is happy with this principle, but a, where we get comes to, to in, interpret him incorrectly is he has a different idea about the idea of um, palm reading. So for Aquinas, he said it's completely impossible to use the natural signs on the hands to predict the future. This is just a form of superstition, and you're being fooled by, by demons. For Aymeric, what he suggests is that um, what the, in the same way that the stars can uh, help to predict future activities, the stars act directly on the human body and uh, altering the humours of the human body. And in by these means, uh, the particular humoral complexion of an individual is reflected in marks that are produced on the body, including lines on the hand. And so for this reason, Aymeric argued that actually, so using classically Thomist arguments, he argues that things such as uh, chiromancy, palm reading, are actually completely legitimate and uh, acceptable and natural for humans to use. He also draws quite a lot on the superilia specula, and a lot of his... Um, interpretation of magic is much more based on the things that inquisitors should look for are these signs of ritual activity uh, rather than trying to investigate and think about truly whether particular um, arts are truly naturally possible. And uh, let, let's go back to the 15th century that we talk about some developments that caused an increase in the persecution of magic both in ecclesiastical and also civil courts. Uh, so what what happened in the 15th century that increased the persecutions of magic? Well, there are, there are a series of changes that occur during the 15th century. Um, and I, I don't think we've got a full explanation of what's mm. or quite what, what's, uh, what's causing an increase in the number of prosecutions. I think one reason is going to be the increasing sophistication of the courts and the, of the bureaucracies of the period uh, more generally. I think at the highest level, we've got a situation in which local bureaucracies and powers are more able to actually enforce their will. I think that's a, a broader change that's going on. But one of the things that I argue in the book, um, what's driving some of this wave of persecutions is a series of changes that's going on within the mendicant orders, the, that is, these um, 
uh, the Dominicans and the Franciscans, who are have been charged with a duty early on. And when they were founded, the idea was that they would go and minister, particularly to urban populations, and uh, in some instances, carrying out the functions of local parish priests, um, who were sometimes seen to be somewhat lacking in in this period. But they'd also be going out and in, trying to engage directly with population and um, try to eradicate from the population of Europe uh, heretical or heretical beliefs and superstitious practices. This had always been a part of what uh, they were for and their purpose. But certainly from the later 14th century, we see attempts to uh, reform these orders themselves, the Dominican and the Franciscan orders. This is called the observant reform period, where groups of Franciscans and Dominicans sought to place themselves in uh, new communities where they returned to what they perceived to be a stricter version of their original rule and their original mandates. And so the Franciscan and Dominican orders attempted to reset really their own houses in order and to um, uh, do things differently. So we have the, a split between two forms of um, uh, friars. You have the the conventional, or if you like, unreformed friars and the observant reforms. And gradually as the 15th century goes on, there becomes an attempt by the observants not only to reform themselves, but to really step up their efforts to reform Catholic society as a whole. And one of the things that I suggest in this book is that part of the uptick in uh, efforts to eliminate superstition is driven by uh, the observance returning to this original role and really pursuing it with a new agenda, a new energy, sorry. So we see friars, uh, Bernardino of Siena, roving around Italy, preaching fiery sermons and trying to get people to cast their backs on uh, material riches. Um, he was a um, vehemently anti-Semitic preacher, was trying to warn uh, communities about how he perceived the danger of uh, Jewish populations amongst them. He was also warning about the dangers that were caused by uh, magic and superstition and the dangers this caused to uh, individual souls. Now, this was part of the, the superstar preachers like uh, Bernardino of Siena are just the tip of the iceberg. Really, you've got the mendicants fanning out across uh, parts of Europe and really trying to push forward this reforming agenda, trying to uh, you know bring back and Christianize uh, populations. This is something that really gathers speed and gathers pace through the 15th century. And it's one of the things that I argue is this motive and this effort to try and reform and uh, bring Christians who perhaps uh, of the towns or outlying villages that have not always received a high quality Christian education. Your average parish priest at this time was uh, relatively uneducated. Seminaries are only established in the 16th century. So seminaries are the institutions that trained priests. Your average parish priest probably wasn't, uh, didn't know that that much more about his faith than um, many of his parishioners. So 
this effort by the observance is really trying to bring a new level of education and new understanding to the people. But within that, it's uh, there, are, there, there are two dimensions to this effort. On the one hand, you've got preaching and missionary activity, trying to engage the population by, you know, uh, preaching in uh, sermons within churches or large uh, public arenas. So there's the, the positive side, but the, the flip side to this and the related side is the use of inquisition to actually root out and try and get rid of these these practices where they can be found. There's um, um, Christine Corwell Avis has argued that we need to understand that the practice of inquisition as part of a suite of pastoral activities. It's by trying to root out and get rid of heresy. You are they're trying to save souls by trying to root out and eliminate superstition from within society. They're trying to stop good, otherwise good Christians from um, condemning themselves to um, uh, damnation, and this really drives all the way through the 15th century. And I think it's the same efforts really come to inform what goes on in the Roman Inquisition. It is uh, the only members of the Roman Inquisition are primarily Dominicans who are staffing it, and they're bringing this reformist agenda through from the 15th century and running it through this reformed, repurposed institution. And what was the reason that the Roman Inquisition was founded in 1543? Was was it a more or less a, did it have a reformist agenda? The, the Roman Inquisition was founded for very specific purposes. It was founded um, by this time, say, the, the, the threat of the Reformation had been rumbling on for some 25 years by this point. Um, and there, was, there were debates about how uh, this issue could be, could be addressed. Um, there were still hopes in some quarters that it might be possible to um, actually overcome the doctrinal differences between Protestants and Catholics and perhaps reunify the, the church. Others were more sceptical. They believed that things had gone too far. But there was still hope that through calling a universal church council, you might be able to bring Protestants and Catholics together and discuss their doctrinal differences and you know reunify the church. But in the, in the short term, while uh, Pope Paul III was going through the efforts of trying to organise this uh, universal church council, which was proving incredibly difficult, there was increasing concern uh, that Protestantism was spreading through Italy in cities particularly like Venice and Modena there seemed to be outbreaks of heresy and um, some of these more hardline cardinals including Cardinal Carafa began to argue that not only was reunification with the Protestants a lost cause but something needed to be done at least in the short term to contain the very specific threat of Protestantism so the Roman Inquisition when it was founded was designed uh, with the explicit purpose of uh, rooting out Protestant heresy in, and to, to do this uh, up until the point that hopefully the Universal Church Council would uh, resolve the outstanding issues and hopefully the idea would be the Inquisition would no longer be necessary. This didn't prove to be the case and the Inquisition uh, became an established part of the Church and obviously the differences between Protestants and Catholics was never resolved. 
But one of the things that comes quite clear is even though the um, the the the, the Roman Inquisition was produced with a, a very clear and specific purpose. Um, from an early stage, uh, so documents and lists of thin books it was producing, for example, suggest that running in parallel with this very specific, very precise uh, aim, they were also attempting to tackle older parts of the agenda that, um, that had been pursued by the Dominicans. So this included attempts to uh, root out magic, but also other older forms of heresy that long predated um, Protestantism. The question more broadly about the reformist agenda is also very interesting because Cardinal Caraffa himself had his own uh, agenda within the Roman Inquisition. He was vehemently anti-Protestant and he was... Um, very, very concerned about the idea of uh, leading clerics within the church who harbored views that were, if not exactly the same as Protestant, were, were, were similar enough to give grounds for uh, possible uh, dialogue and uh, possibly finding some sort of accommodation between the two. And there were leading clerics such as Cardinal Moroni or um, Cardinal William Paul who held views which were not exactly the same as Protestant views, but they were sim sympathetic to certain ideas, particularly the idea of um, uh, salvation by faith alone. They were interested and sympathetic towards these ideas. But um, Carafa began to use uh, the Inquisition as a vehicle to actually uh, put forward his own reformist agenda, and that was involved eradicating these kind of tendencies within the um the within the catholic church what he wanted to prevent was any idea that you could actually have this kind of accommodation between protestants and catholics and so he begins to use the inquisition to gather evidence against individuals such as morone and against william cardinal pole and to prevent them from ever becoming hopefully uh pope when uh carafa actually becomes pope himself pope paul the fourth one of his first acts is actually to imprison uh, Cardinal Moroni, put him in, to keep him away, you know, out, out of the way, so he can't influence uh, the future direction of the church. So when we're talking about reformist agendas, there's not a reformist agenda. There are lots of agendas going on, and um, it's it's a really complicated map, and we need to be aware that it's not possible I mean, one of my other objections this idea of a counter-reformation church is it's a category that covers up so much of this complex history that there are lots of individuals in the church who would all consider themselves to be reformers but they're pushing for reform in all sorts of different ways and uh, the final question I have is, is I think it's a perfect way to bring this conversation to an end which is about also the title of your book Nature's Limit so how did what is meant by that, and how did the Roman Inquisition define this nature's limit? This goes back to um, my understanding of what Thomas Aquinas was trying to achieve in his discussions of superstition and his discussions of magic. Key thing for Aquinas was it was perfectly possible to practice an operative art as long as you remained just remained within uh, nature's limits. 
as long as you were only manipulating and controlling nature's laws, you weren't relying on uh, demons for assistance. So one of the problems we've faced is that there were different accounts and different interpretations of what uh, was, in fact, naturally possible. So uh, Aquinas' mentor, Albertus Magnus, for example, held broadly similar views to Aquinas, but on certain specific issues, he had uh, different interpretations of the way that uh, nature actually worked. So, for example, uh, Albertus Magnus believed that it was possible to fashion astrological talismans to bring down astral influences by making inscriptions on uh, pieces of metal. As we've seen, Aquinas had uh, rejected this idea. So we've got two different interpretations here of where nature's limits actually truly lay. You know, what, what was possible for humans within uh, the natural order to achieve by their own efforts, by their own capacities. What I'm suggesting is that the Roman Inquisition actually serves to codify where these precise boundaries lie. What are the acceptable limits of what humans can actually do by their own actions? What are the limits uh, to which humans can intervene in, manipulate and control the natural order? And in this way, what they're actually doing is demarcating and delimiting um, the boundaries of philosophical discourse. There are certain philosophical claims about the nature of the created order that you simply cannot make once uh, the Roman Inquisition is actually able to impose these, um, these boundaries. So for me, the big difference that the Roman Inquisition has made is that whereas previously there were a series of different interpretations of how the natural order might work, and there were debates and um, uh, disputes about the, the details of what forms of magical activity were indeed natural and legitimate, for the first time by the establishment of the 16th century, we've got this centralised authority that is able to make uh, these decisions and say and demarcate and say this activity is okay, this activity is not, and it has the uh, network of uh, inquisitors that can actually impose these uh, centrally defined uh, ideas. So it's this process of demarcating the bounds of legitimate natural philosophical debate is what I mean by this definition of nature's limits. Uh, Dr. Neil Torrin, thank you very, very much for taking the time to talk with us on New Books Network. Really enjoyed this conversation. I strongly encourage our listeners to uh, to go to the book and pick up the book and read it. It's a fascinating book, has lots of information about uh, history, medieval history, and I'm sure uh, a, lot of them will, a lot of them will be surprised as well because uh, you know, there are a lot of misconceptions we have about the Middle Ages and also the Inquisitions. Uh, that reading this book can really be informative. Very much.